Have you been zombified by your social network? Yeah. I mean, lately I've been zombified by the collapse of my social network amid coronavirus, you know? Um, <laughs> no, like for real, like I, it's, it's been, it's gotten smaller and fragmented. People have sort of moved. Like I've had, yeah, it's, it's just weird. How about you? Yeah. And we can't really get together in groups. So like that feeling of being around people who also know each other and enjoy being together, like that's kind of gone now. Yeah, it is. It's a really weird, like it is a, it's a, it's a weird new dynamic and it's almost like you even can't like, it's like, Oh, if you're part of another group, if you have too many friends that aren't me, you can't be one of my friends because you're exposed to too many other people. So really, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a totally different world. And, you know, and this episode with uh, Tomas David Barrett, we recorded it before the pandemic, but like the topic that we discuss is so relevant, I think, to what's going on now, because basically, um, Tomas talks about how we are embedded in these social networks and humans have been forever. We've been embedded in social networks and, you know, in ancestral times. So like back when humans were mostly hunter gatherers, the people that we knew, you know, we had larger families. So the people that we knew also knew each other really well. So we were in these networks sort of, you know, really high connectedness among all of the individuals in them. And today we don't have that so much because we have smaller families, you know, people are friends with people from much further away. So the people that we know are much less likely to know other people that we know. <laughs> right. It, it, it's really weird. And it's gotten all the weirder since coronavirus. Like when we've been putting together like our conference and things, it's like we've worked with people that live a thousand miles away and that we yeah. may never meet in real life. So, yeah. Well, and that's like the positive side of all of this too, right? It's like, yeah, well, you know, yeah, it's true that the people that you know are less likely to know each other. So you don't have this kind of like density of a social network anymore, but you also do have the opportunity to make connections with people who you, you know, might not otherwise, like they might not be part of your friend group. They might not naturally be someone who fits in with your family and your, your friends. So, you know, so to me, I see like that as a really positive side of the way that our social networks are, even if there are some kind of challenges that are associated with that too. Cool. So uh, tell me a bit about who we're talking to today. Yes. Yeah, so we are talking to Tomas David Barrett. He teaches economics at Oxford in the UK. And uh, he also has affiliations in Finland and Chile. And uh, he studies lots of sort of diverse interdisciplinary issues having to do with sociality and cooperation and economics. And we have a, a really fun conversation in this episode. I mean, we talk about everything from like, you know, computational models of social networks to him, you know, dressing up in a toga at Burning Man. So. All right. So what what do you think was the most surprising thing that uh, you guys discussed during this episode? So, yeah. So for me, like really the heart of this episode is just how many things follow from the fact that right now our family sizes are smaller than they were in ancestral times. 
And then, and it's like, you know, when you actually think through like what that means for our social networks, that's the part that totally blew my mind. Interesting. So cool. Well, I mean, yeah, it really does make sense. And also like, I think about my family and my cousins and everything, they still live in Pennsylvania and I'm out here. And so it's like, we never see each other. So, um, Mm -hmm. so you guys talk about sort of how this affects us and how this sort of Yep. And, you know, how it affects the way that we even feel in our day-to-day lives because of, you know, the fact that, you know, not only, like you mentioned, you know, like even the cousins that you do have, you don't live near enough to them that they're part of your immediate social network. So, yeah, life is very different for modern humans than it was for ancestral humans embedded in their, you know, familial networks. Well, cool. Well, I can't wait to hear how this is screwed up our relationships (laughs) (laughs) yeah so let's hear from this week's fresh brain tomas david barrett i know it's crazy but it seems so logical try to fight it but it's something psychological with you makes me act the way i do I'm not trying to be over-analytical Retracing time to remind myself how ugly this could be But something else is taking over me Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Would you introduce yourself in your own words? So, I'm Tomasz David Barrett. I'm a behavioral scientist. Um, I work on the evolutionary origins of human social behavior, in particular on the social network forming behaviors. So, humans and sometimes other species. So, how we kind of create these relationships and maintain them, and then what the consequences are of that. Yes. So all humans live in a social mm-hmm. in a social environment, and, and our environment every time is uh, structured by the social network we live in. And when our predecessors, our intellectual predecessors, for the first time started to look at this, they draw this really cute and called social network graphs. Mm-hmm. So everybody's a dot, uh, and every relationship between people is a line. And then started to describe you know, how these networks grow, and we had a bunch of models of how we compute these in mm-hmm. our brains. And then there was all this like sort of pop stuff about like six degrees of separation. Exactly. And is exactly. that true? That- well, uh, it's... Depends on how you measure it, but okay. but actually it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, we just very recently figured out that it might not be a general case for human societies. It's very much dependent on the local clustering coefficient. Basically, what does that mean? What basically, is the how coefficient? how closely connected our social network is. So if we live in, in societies where our social connections are connected to are likely to be connected to each other. Mm-hmm then the degrees of separation in only 7.6 billion people is much higher than if this local connection, connectedness, goes down. 
Mm, so because basically the point is that if you have three people yeah. and they're connected to each other, then uh, uh, to get to the, and everybody has a limited number of, of connections, to get to the 7.6 billions, uh, you will have, you will need to have much more steps. Right. Whereas actually if they're sort of lined up in a line, then very quickly you will get to everybody. So, so anyway, if, if you're just in a group where everybody knows each other and they don't really branch out much, yes. basically, then it's going to take way more degrees of separation to get yes. all the way around the world. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, that's what I do. And uh, so what, what I'd like to add to this, which is maybe interesting, is that when we look at these social networks, these black graphs, yeah, uh, we always assume that an edge is an edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like so, a connection. Is yeah, it's a connection. Every, all is a connections connection. are the same. Exactly. And maybe it will, it's going to vary, the, the edges will vary in their, their weight, how intensive, how strong the connections are. Maybe they're going to be varying in, in the direction. So somebody's more linked to the other than the other one, vice versa. Mm-hmm. But we always assumed, maybe because these came from physical networks, that an edge is an edge, which is. If you think about it, it's complete bollocks because we have kin relationships with our relatives uh, which will have a completely different logic to it, evolutionary origin and logic to it, as romantic relationship, our relationship with our loves. Mm-hmm. And again, they were completely different logic to them as our, our relationship with our friends. So it turns out that if you take those accounts, you have a bunch of consequences for the structure of the mm-hmm. society. Well, it, it sounds like these connections that you know these links between people are not it's not just that they differ quantitatively like oh some are more intense and some are less Mm. but they differ qualitatively there's something different about the nature of these connections yes yes our friends we are we are not in love with our friends uh well we are love in love with as as we are with a friend (laughs) but we are not in romantic love with our friends Uh, for instance. So the, the logic of romantic love will be true for a romantic relationship. It will not be, not, it is not going to be true for friendship. Similarly, the, our logic of with our brother, our mm-hmm. sister, our sibling is going to be different than with our love and with our friend. And so that will have a bunch of consequences. Right, right. And so then given the way that we're embedded in these social networks, that makes a difference for our behavior, for the way that we're embedded in society, and it has all sorts of effects on us. So sort of starts to connect then to the idea for this podcast of being zombified by things, right? So Mm -hmm. things that are influencing us that we might not necessarily fully recognize are are influencing us, um, and things that are affecting society that might be a little bit hidden from view. So do you mean that we are not entirely aware how our behavior is shaped? Sometimes we just feel a behavior. Mm -hmm. We just feel what it's like to be hugged by a friend as opposed to hugged by a love, as opposed to hugged by a brother. Mm -hmm. And, And we are going to, we will feel it that it's different, but we are not going to be thinking about this. Is that what you mean? Yeah, and we certainly aren't necessarily going to be aware of how these different kinds of relationships and the networks that are being formed by just our everyday Mm -hmm. behavior are affecting 
these broader things that are going on. Yes. Like, you know, before we, we started the recording, we're talking a little bit about the demographics, right? Yes. And how there's all these demographic changes yes. that are happening as a result of the changes in these kinds of mm. networks. So, I mean, we don't have to get into all of that all at once now, but... Um, That's what everything at once. Yes, right. Everything at once now. <laughs> um, but, the, but I think that this, you know, there's sort of this... Um, this influence of these mm-hmm. these networks that most of us, as we're going through our day-to-day lives, mm-hmm. we're not thinking about how the way we're embedded in these networks is affecting our behavior yeah. or affecting society at large. Yes. Especially, it's interesting, because we are sitting in central London. Yeah. And here, uh, life is very different from the countryside. I, I came in from a little village next to Oxford, and... And there are two immediate, three immediate gigantic differences. One is that a little village in Oxfordshire is fertility, the number of children per woman, is still higher than in, Ox- than in central London. Uh, what, what's the average? So many people, it's a very small village, but many people have three kids. Mm-hmm. We have two kids. Okay. Uh, whereas here it's under two, in mm-hmm. fact. A bet in this part of London, maybe it's even under one. It's uh, probably a dog. It might, might be a dog, <laughs> yes. It's funny because sometimes you know, sometimes we should really count dogs as, as children. <laughs> no, I mean, we are our species being called it by another species. You know, the dogs. As if I, I haven't seen any data on this, but I bet that that people who families who have uh, dogs they are less likely to have to choose to have another child. And in that case, basically, the dog just simply pushed out a, a future child, yeah? So, classic, <laughs> classic cocoon. Like, you know, our first, very first episode uh-huh. is about the puppy apocalypse. Okay, well, what's about, about this? dogs uh-huh. um, zombifying our parental investment uh-huh. systems, uh-huh. among other things. Uh-huh. But. <laughs> Did you see data on this? Uh, we, we talked about the evolution of dogs uh-huh. and how they kind of evolved to be... Uh-huh cute in order to uh-huh. be able to manipulate us and that um, they actually have oxytocin systems yeah. that are mm-hmm. you know function the same mm-hmm. as human mm-hmm. oxytocin systems so they probably really do love us mm-hmm. so um, well, but yeah, but yeah. I don't know about the data I don't yeah. we you know it was a sort of you know a, a bit of a speculative discussion about whether the you know people were not having more kids because they were having dogs I don't know that anybody's done a study on it so I th- I know that maybe the Budapest dog uh, department, uh, ethology department, yeah, they might have data on this. We should ask. We should. Yeah. We should ask. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So because it was so cool, yeah, to yeah. actually show, uh, because they love us. Okay. So what does it mean? I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> but we're gonna then go back. What does life mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. So we're talking about the. You're saying you came from Oxfordshire. Yes. And, yeah. Yes. So so here in an urban space. We, even if the relatives were around, we would be, there would be many other people in between us. The fertility is, is lower, uh, and the migration rate is much higher than in a small village in Oxford. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what you have is that you do not have the, the traditional society's kin network to rely on. And that will have a bunch of consequences. One of the consequences is that kin networks have a higher local density. Which means very simply what does that, mean? Yeah. that that your social connections mm-hmm. are connected to each other. Okay. If you have two siblings, Jack and Peter, 
uh, and they are your your brothers, then by definition, they are going to be siblings with each other. Mm-hmm. And these relationships are going to be stable. Mm-hmm. If you then have two other friends who are not John and Julian, uh, they are friends. They're less likely to be friends with each other than 100% probability. And these links are going to be less stable than with siblings. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, even if you have the same number of social connections, the local interconnectedness of the network is going to be different. And that is going to have a bunch of consequences because it seems that our species hates to be in a low connectivity environment. environment. Uh, It's very simple why. Because... When you have a high clustering coefficient, so they're very connected around you, yeah. then you can rely on the traditional network reputation to enforce non-following. So if someone yeah. is not doing what they should, then, with you, yes. then the consequen- they have consequences with everybody. Because everybody will learn mm. that, you know, Jill, uh, you know, she was, mm. she was not doing the thing that our society wants. Yeah? Uh-huh. I'm from Hungary. In Hungary, there's a wonderful saying for this. Don't do that, darling, because you're going, the, the village is going to take you on its tongue. Ah. It's gorgeously uh-huh. uh, how, how is it in Hungarian? A follower, nechinald mert a follower sajar of us. Sounds nice. Yeah? No. It's going to, it's <laughs> going to take, take you on its mouth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful uh, way of saying that actually norms are going to be uh, enforced mm-hmm. by the very simple mecha- mechanism of, of network reputation mm-hmm. spreading. Mm-hmm. Now, that relies on your network being connected. If you are going to be uh, non-cooperative with Jack and Jack is not connected to Julian, then Julian will never learn that you were not cooperative with Jack, and hence, you the cost of of, of non-cooperation, of cheating behavior, or non norm non norm not following yeah. goes down. Yeah. So we don't like to be these environments because mm-hmm. we can't trust our social connections. Yeah. So we have a bunch of consequences in urban migratory low fertile spaces. People feel lonely, people feel depressed, suicide rates go through the roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then suddenly we need, we have a different, we, we want to recreate these highly clustered societies. So we come up with ideas. Here, actually, in central London, was mm-hmm. one of the most ingenious ideas. Or I don't know, many of, of always okay. come up. These, these institutions always come up. Yeah. Just a generation after the fertility started to fall in the upper middle class in England, an institution emerged, uh, the Gentleman's Club. Huh. Which, which just, just simply uh, provided a space in which, if you belong to the space, you would know that others who belong to that are highly likely to be connected to each other. And hence, suddenly, there was an institution which increased the interconnectedness among your friends. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times, what we are doing... Now in the U.S., of course, Gentleman's Club means something completely different. What does it mean? It's a strip club. Ah! Is there... Uh-huh. Is there any kind of social social interaction in, in the strip club among the men? I presume only men go to the strip club. I, I've never been. It's so shameful. I'm being assigned to another <laughs> strip club. <laughs> I should have a field trip. What, what is a strip club, club like? 
Um, well, so I, I went to a few in Portland. Okay. Um, and, you know, it, it's basically women, you know, dancing to music mm-hmm. while they're taking off their clothes. Mm-hmm. And men, you know, and, you know, usually a few women are there too. And, As a client. Um, yeah, or they're there with, you know. Uh, As hostesses. Um, or they've uh, come on a date there or something. I, I don't think that happens very often. Strip club dating. <laughs> at least in, in Portland, that would happen. Sex positive approach to the future <laughs> But, uh, you know, I mean, I think they differ a lot. Like some, some seem like they're, you know, sort of respectful spaces mm-hmm. and others don't. And it's... Uh, It really depends on how, how it's run and, who, and who's there. But Is there any interaction among the, the clients? Um, I think sometimes people will go there, you know, with friends. So, oh, like, so like, that's, yeah. So when I was there, it was, you know, with a group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, curiosity more than anything right. else, right? But right. Um, right. It, seems uh, it serves a different function than the... Yeah, the London gentleman's club. Yes, I yes. think it's entirely <coughs> different function. <laughs> But it was probably brilliant that they, you know, took the you know, phrase gentleman's club. Yeah. <laughs> to... I see it was a marketing ploy. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm just speculating. But anyway, so you're saying that in, in London they... They, they, they had this, this for a while, yeah? yeah? yeah. And then, but then, then there are a bunch of things that we, we do today in which we are increasing the clustering coefficient and interconnectedness among our friends. So one way is the, is the dinner party. Yeah? So I feel mm-hmm. that tonight, um, I'm having a dinner party tonight, uh, and there is this other friend of mine, Kate. Mm-hmm. Would you like to come over? You guys are going to get on like a house on fire. That sounds great, but I, I'm pretty sure that this isn't actually true. Are, are, you, you, are you having a dinner party tonight? No, no, we're going out for dinner. That's so, what I'm I thought, like, yes. Take me out. <laughs> no, um, it is an example. I, yes, It yes, is yes. an example because this, this honest, you know, I, I put in a very honest voice. Yeah. yeah so that it was so honest. Because this is a line that yeah. people give each other all the time. Mm-hmm. And of course, when I'm putting this honest voice, I'm going to say, please come over tonight because, because uh, uh, you're going to increase going to the like, clustering coefficient of my network. <laughs> I want to increase my customer. <laughs> In fact, I'm asking you to drop some, both of you, to drop somebody else uh-huh. so that my clustering coefficient goes up. Mm-hmm. So we are engaging with, in this behavior all the time mm-hmm. that uh, we check. This is one of the pieces of, of research that I've done. And for years, I've got the data and I haven't published yet. But I will just tell it to you now. I'm out in the world yeah. that actually it seems that ev- in every culture we, we looked, and we looked in seven different cultures, People, when they choose a long-term rela- uh, relationship, but not when they're a short-term relationship, they take into account as made choice factor whether the two kin groups are yeah. going to be uh, complementary with each other. In complementary, in what sense? Whether you are going to, whether they're going to get along with each other. Oh, Whether oh, these yeah, yeah. final kinships are going to work. Mm-hmm. And in that framing, you could think of a wedding as, rather than a celebration and a party, You could think of a wedding as a very cheap way of creating, operationalizing the future, future uh, final kin bonds. You basically uh-huh. put them all together, you give them booze, you give them food, everybody dances. And so a party is a way to increase your yes, clustering coefficient. Yes, basically. exactly. With a clustering coefficient in the, in the near kinship or in these days increasing the, the close friends. 
Yeah. And you merge them together and it's like, okay, great. And we are going to have a highly clustered uh, group, uh, a social group around us. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the thing that you were saying about, you know, why we want this clustering coefficient to be high so that, mm -hmm. you know, the reputation can have this effect right. so that, you know, people are more likely to cooperate. Right. Um, I mean, this is like, a you know, one of the positive sides of zombification is that sometimes, you know, being influenced by others can increase cooperation. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in a way, it's like we want to be in a network where, you know, we're zombified and everyone else is, you know, zombified by having that closer interconnection so that cooperation is more likely. It's very interesting that the way you put this zombification, as if you, you were arguing that it is, we are just carrier of ideas. It goes back to almost the meme Mm -hmm. uh, idea the almost is is that where, where that, that we get we captured by these institutions yeah we are captured by these these norms and mm -hmm. these ideas and then they together are going to fo form the space we can be in is, yeah. is that what you, what that's, you mean? That, that's part of it and mm -hmm. and also just you know it, it may very well be that our brains are set up to you know be more influenced by others in yes situations where the you know clustering coefficient of the network is higher right when you know all of the people who know you they yeah. also know each other yeah. probably there should be you know the, the the our brain should be set up to mm. then you know maybe be more conformist or to you know follow the norms more yeah. or very interesting you you say this um there is a particular period period in our life when the clustering coefficient is particularly low so the interconnectedness is particularly low. Okay. Think of, of the number of connections you have and the interconnectedness to the clustering coefficient okay. during a life course. All right. So you're born to your mom, yeah. who's connected, maybe your grandma. Uh -huh. So, But two, a, a lot of your connections <coughs> are going through your inner yeah. family. Yes, yeah. so two, in a, in initial yeah. degree, number of connections. Two, a full triangle. 100% clustering coefficient. And you gradually go in your family, so the number mm -hmm. of connections go up, but they will be connected to each other. So mm -hmm. the clustering coefficient stays 100%. Mm -hmm. And then the gradually you go into our other kids, yeah. and then so maybe suddenly the clustering coefficient drops a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then it's you cool. leave your childhood <laughs> and you know, juvenile, and then yeah. suddenly, suddenly... Dispersal. <laughs> suddenly, before even dispersal, suddenly uh -huh. you go through puberty, uh -huh. And then a large, the oh. majority of the society is suddenly interested in the other sex that they have. Mm -hmm. And then they say, gee, I need to make more connections. Hello. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then, of course, that means that yeah. the cluster... Well, even if you're interested in the same sex, you still want to <coughs> expand your expand, network. Expand, exactly. Right? exactly. Yeah. And then, so suddenly the clustering coefficient collapses. And, and hmm. then even if you're interested in the same sex, yeah. you actually be, need, probably need to go even further because there might not be enough right. people around. Yeah. yeah. So suddenly your cluster, your degree goes up, your number of connections goes yeah. up, but the clustering coefficient, the interconnectedness goes down. Mm -hmm. And then for a few years, until you catch up and you yeah. learn how to manage this, your you have this low clustering coefficient. And huh. interestingly enough, that's exactly the age when we are desperate to fit in. That's we are desperate to be not standing out, to be exactly like everybody else, wear the right kind of shoes, 
you know, mm. just... I've got two of these two kids exactly that age. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I observe this behavior mm. every day. Mm. That they are just... Um, they, 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 they are... Their individualism is, is, mm. is suppressed and they just want to fit in. Mm. And it might not <coughs> be so much that it's because the, they're in a network that's so connected, but it's because they're yeah. trying to build one. Uh, build Is one, the idea? yes, build one, yeah, and then when they start building it, the cross yeah. coefficient, the interconnectedness yeah. goes down. Yeah. So, well, and it also strikes me, you know, now we're kind of getting into this interesting territory uh -huh. of, you know, like yes, there are benefits to having a high clustering coefficient, but there are also really important benefits from not just sort of staying totally local, right? You can meet people who might be mates. Yes. Um, you can learn things from people who don't know yeah. all the same things that you know. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, ultimately, if you want to understand the world, you don't want to just be interacting with brains who have access to all the same information. Yes, yes, you, you want you want to explore. Yeah, and then it's going going to be tricky whether you know you will be able to do that. There is this wonderful result, um, uh, Jeffrey West's result that higher density city urban spaces have a higher rate of innovation. Yeah. Yeah. So and I wonder whether it's exactly the mechanism that you mm. you just described here. So we are going to have the two sides against each other. And I presume some people will just like to be in the same little group there. They're comfortable. So they're comfortable and feel they know the norm. This home. is just yeah. how I do it. And, and some people, and I think right now in this room there might be two <laughs> who just want to go out and try everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then of course sometimes we just sit there lonely. Oh, look at this, it didn't work this time. Nobody likes you. Well, actually, apart from the two thousand friends we have there. So <laughs> <gasps> so, yes. Yeah, so it, it, there are all of these, there, there are two sides to, yes. to this, right? And then having a high clustering coefficient can be good for certain kinds of things and for certain kinds of relationships, but maybe uh, the ideal, I mean, not that we have to say, oh, this is the ideal, but uh, it, could, it seems like it could be good to have a, a local cluster um, but then also to have some longer distance connections, right? I see. So you say that the structural microfoundations theory should also provide a sort of a behavioral guidelines of how to <laughs> how to how to build the, the right know, kind just, of. It's a great question. I, yeah. you know, I haven't thought yeah. of it. It's a great question. What can we somehow create? Have a guideline that to have a highly connected part of our network where yeah. we can always run back to it. Yeah, and then and then have a a, a a other parts where we allow ourselves almost a designed core. I'm not. I'm trying not to use the word core because maybe you can have several of these uh -huh. highly connected networks. Right. But maybe maybe always have a have a fallback network, mm -hmm. yeah? which used to be the family. But the right. family is now falling apart, and they are so small that you can't really do that. So mm -hmm. you need to have something else, a club, mm -hmm. maybe. For some people, it's their employers. You know, it's their workplaces. Right. And and it seems like that's kind of becoming a, a model you see more and more where, you know, the workplace is like, mm -hmm. um, you know, like Google and Facebook, right? It's like they feed you, house you. Yeah. If you need a counselor, you can go there. And, yeah. you know, everything is is there. And Do you think when this happens, these companies zombify these employees? 
by capturing them. Because mm. if, if you create a space in which a community emerges yeah. in, a, in a corporation, which is in many ways a space of exchange, it's a tricky, tricky thing. Yeah. And if, if the fallback is there, they really have no fallback if they have a conflict with you. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. As a corporation. Yeah. So almost, it's almost a capture. Mm-hmm. Or a capture, a behavioral capture, yeah. a zombie capture. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's sort of doing it with positive incentives in a way rather than negative ones, right? But I often right. think about right. zombification right. as like coercive, right. but yes. it can also just be, well, you know, there's free food. So why would you go home at seven instead of just eating here Mm -hmm. and you know all of these other services are here and you could take a nap over there you know and so if you're providing those things and making it comfortable for people then so maybe it's not a problem yeah so i'm not sure because we're now sort of almost saying that this shouldn't happen maybe i'm not sure like you know me people people live they like communities and then after a while they die uh, yeah. So, uh, like, yeah. What, who are we to say that? Uh, yeah. Uh, and in fact, if you create a, a stable community, part of a corporation, maybe maybe the only problem is if it gets cap- captured in a way that that people get abused because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. ends up becoming kind and of coercive. If, yeah. If, yeah. It, if somehow that's a way of coercion. Yeah. And has becomes a way of manipulation. Right. Then it's a problem. But if it's just creating yeah. a community and then people's workplace is a place yeah. where they feel comfortable and they're mm-hmm. taken care of, then mm-hmm. that's probably good. Does anybody think about this in these terms? Mm-hmm. I, I know that people sometimes think about, management people sometimes think about what happens when all of these goodies are being provided. Um, I've never seen anybody actually ask. Maybe there's somebody out there. I don't know. Yeah. Would be interesting. Yeah, well, throwing all these parties, right? Yeah. Lower the clustering coefficient. Yes. So. Yes. Or you raise it, sorry. You raise the clustering coefficient of yeah. the party. So, yeah. And then we create these long term ones. Yeah. It's very interesting because I wonder whether a lot of the, lot of the corporations that have unique culture, actually, those, the uniqueness of that culture comes on the back of a highly, highly dense core. Mm hmm. When when that core sort of maintains, on that core the culture yeah. can emerge and then becomes really strong. So when somebody else mm-hmm. comes in, because we are humans, yeah. we are great apes who will pick up these cultural norms right away, mm-hmm. bang, is, is the same culture. And hence, culture can last longer than in these corporations or these institutions yeah. than, than, uh, than in, in not connected mm-hmm. ones. Well, and there's also this sort of innovation Thing which we started right. talking about, which is, you know, well, how are they, um, you know, not just having a, a maybe a core where you have these sort of norms and culture, but right. also this ability to take in new people and ideas and connect to them and, you know, not get too stuck. In. Right. And that's a really important part of innovation, right, is not, not getting too stuck. Right. So you need to move people around and you need to need to at least have some agents who are messengers among these different uh, different Yeah, or maybe clusters. have some mechanisms for mm-hmm. new ideas, mm-hmm. you know, a, a culture mm-hmm. where new things can transmit to as opposed to just, a, you know, culture where things stagnate right. And, right. and the norms stay yeah. and, yeah. you know, that, that yeah. sort of... And we see that in our agility. field, in our own institutions, where 
interdisciplinarity, which essentially people going into each other's methods and yeah. language and ground truths, say, okay, give me your ground truths, give me your theories, and then we're <laughs> gonna, and then we can see how many times it creates this new mm-hmm. these waves of innovation mm-hmm. of, of scientific understanding or whatever yeah. uh, uh, areas. So, but there, there is this tension often, yes. right? So within the disciplines, you have this highly yes. connected <laughs> network with norms. You know, all mm-hmm. you do it this way, and this is yes. the process, and these are the people who yes. have to has to be okay with for yes. you to be able to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm originally trained as an economist, and I still teach economics. So I sometimes go to these biology and economics conferences and workshops, and. Almost 100% of the economics, economists, when they go up and, and give a talk at a biology and economics workshop or evolution and economics workshop, will start the talk with the following works, words, we in economics. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's super interesting. Basically, here's my stamp. I will not let go of the flag. I will not let go of the flag. <laughs> And, you know, that's, yeah. that's also predicts how far the conversation is going to get. <laughs> <laughs> Learn our very clever ways. <laughs> yeah. So in in academia, do you think that you do have a sort of, I mean, we, we talked about, you know, when you're born, right, mm-hmm. your clustering coefficient is first, uh-huh. you know, uh, very high. And then it becomes, you know, smaller. Mm-hmm. Like what's the... Um, What's the life course of a clustering coefficient for someone who enters, you know, and they become question. a PhD student and then they, you know, progress through and then maybe, you know, they eventually become a, you know, professor emeritus or something? That's a really interesting question because at, when you come in, yeah, you are you're exposed to a lot of ideas, uh-huh. but your network is sort of that extremely small. Yeah, then you it's may like be, when you're born. And yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Just so you're your a master student, undergraduate, your, a master, your siblings yeah. and dad, yeah. And then you become a PhD student, you become a member of a of a lab, and then suddenly all the truths are there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, don't look anywhere else. I, I'm, I'm having several different uh, uh, positions in the world, and so I, I, I move among different research groups. Yeah, so tell us, where are you and how does this oh, work? So I'm, I'm in Oxford, I'm in Santiago, and a little bit in Helsinki, and it's very recently uh, I was also in Germany. And, you know, I have uh, you know other, other collaborators. So what, what I want to say is that what's interesting is that even if we are thinking about the same question, the assumptions are different. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if you go, so some of the work, some of the network work is about inequality, and the emergence of stratified societies. So if you are asking this question in Helsinki, uh, which is part of the Finnish society, in which people believe, it seems very widely, that the society has a natural state and equality is is the natural state. So if if it's unequal, it's going to revert back to equality. Hmm. So asking a question about stratification... Presenting even just a model and seeing what the what the questions are is completely different than going to Santiago de Chile, which is one of the most unequal societies among the Western mm. world, among the developed world, uh, where people, it seems, from the bottom to the top, seem to believe that inequality is the, is the natural that there is a natural state, so that they, they agree there's a natural <laughs> state, yeah? but inequality 
is a natural state. So if a society is equal, it is going to revert back to inequality. Interesting. So completely different underlying assumptions mm -hmm. about, about essentially the same set of models. Yeah. So you, we end up in these labs, in these in our societies and also within our labs, the, the grand truths emerge. Did you have such a grand truth when you were a PhD student? What was, what was, uh, what, do you have a grand truth that now you think, oh, that was silly? So the, the lab that I did my PhD in was very cynical about human nature. In what sense? Um, that, you know, really anything and everything that humans do is self-serving. Mm -hmm. And... That it was very hard for me to kind of, I mean, I you know I'd read Dawkins' Selfish Gene, and I you know I was an evolutionary biologist, and you know was interested in evolution of cooperation. I'd you know studied cheating. I'd done models of how cheating right. evolved. So right. you know I knew all of that, but to me it just didn't seem like you know, the right assumption at baseline is that everything that humans do is self-serving. It just didn't seem right to me. And so that was, that was a little, a little difficult to be in that. And, and actually, I mean, to be perfectly honest, um, I had like existential angst oh, wow. throughout mm -hmm. graduate school because I was mm -hmm. kind of, I mean, it, it just didn't feel right to mm -hmm. me, but I, that was kind of the paradigm I was having to work within and, you know, and, 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 and so, um, and it took me a little while after to just realize, oh, okay, I don't have to, mm -hmm. I don't have to, you know, say ultimately everything comes down to self-serving stuff. You know, humans actually, we, we evolved to, you know, be generous and mm -hmm. to take care of others. And, mm -hmm. you know, yes, you can say that, uh, some of that is because of you know genetic relatedness mm. and some is because you're expecting to get something mm. back um but not always and mm. you know so so anyway that was a long digression no, but no, that, that, that's, that's <laughs> and actually that's really interesting because of course you can in 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 our field we tell evolutionary stories uh about where a certain set of behavior or phenomena come from yeah but and of course, that that will be in some definition self-serving, mm -hmm. but you know, but one of them is telling narratives, telling stories. Yeah, I mean, we evolved the ability to tell stories. Mm -hmm. We evolved the ability to make music, yeah. and I mean, so if you go to listen to Bach, or you know, you go to to, to the ballet, or you know, you, mm -hmm. you you go to the street corner and you see a performance, and mm -hmm. and it touches your heart. I mean, that's, of course, that has a foundation in evolutionary foundation, but now I've gone into this incredibly complex yeah. cultural uh, uh, build-up in right. which we sort of lose. I'm not sure if it makes, it makes sense to ask the self-serving question on that level. Yeah. yeah, well, and I think also, you know, ultimately evolution doesn't make for... A, emotional experience and a subjective experience of, yeah. you know, doing things that are just, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make it satisfying and reinforcing to live 
a self-serving life because right. we're fundamentally so social that yeah. you know if you don't have those relationships yes. that you can depend on if you don't yeah. have you know people who you trust and who yeah. trust you where you know if all you have is relationships that are instrumental where people are associating with you because you provide them benefits and vice versa and you both know that and that's that's all that your life is based on you're, you're fucking miserable yeah. that's not a good existence yeah. it's, it's i mean <laughs> at all yeah and and I don't think our psychology is, you know, designed evolved, designed for that. for that. Evolved for that, yes. Yeah. Exactly. We I, are. yeah. I mean I think maybe we're designed to be able to take advantage of some of those, you know, opportunities for oh, I can help you with this, you can help me with this, we make that deal, we do that, and you know, but but that's different than saying that that's the fundamental way that our sociality mm. works, right? It, it's mm. you know I would actually half disagree with your last Please. statement. Yeah. I would think that that even the exchange is a culture that we learned. So we mm. we we have clearly we have the ability to learn these. Yeah. But I'm not sure whether the exchange itself is you know this is a this calculated thing. exchange is mm. itself is is a fundamental mm. thing. I mean look at all those cultures that where where uh, communal property is the name of the game. You know for for exchange you need some kind of individual property. Yeah. And if you don't have that, if everything is owned by the community, mm -hmm. it sort of doesn't make that much yeah. sense anymore. Yeah. Uh, I, I think about the Maasai, you know, who uh -huh. study them in the Human Generosity Project. And right. they have, so they have herds. Mm -hmm. And those are private property in the sense uh -huh. that families will have a herd. Mm -hmm. And um, then if somebody drops below the amount of, cows that they need to support their family, they'll, mm -hmm. they can ask for help. And they do. They right. ask for help. And someone who has enough, right. Right. you know, if they're asked, they'll, they'll mm -hmm. help. And this mm -hmm. is called osotois. Mm -hmm. It's their mm -hmm. need-based sharing. Mm -hmm. um, they also have a system called sile, which mm -hmm. is a debt credit system. So they might ask, hey, can I borrow three cows because I want to have a party or I just want three more mm -hmm. cows or whatever. Um, and then, you know, I'll pay you back. Mm -hmm. So they have these two systems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they're sort of coexisting at the same time, but they have different, different rules about, you know, how they work. Mm -hmm. Isn't that wonderful that, that that tension between the individual interest and the behavior was your PhD group's existential angst? And, that, <laughs> and then you set up the human generosity project, <laughs> beautiful, yeah. in which you find the Maasai example. It's gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. So what happens next? So you've got PhD and then you become... A postdoc, yeah. you go to conferences and you suddenly start having friends. Maybe yeah. that is the time when you start hating the supervisor, just the way as a 16-year-old as a starts hating the adolescent. <laughs> no, I believe you. Who are you to me to tell me that? <laughs> How to behave? <laughs> and what do you even know anyway? <laughs> exactly. You are too old and you haven't done anything for decades. <laughs> really? <laughs> And then, and then you become, you know, you get on the, on the ladder, and then you gradually build your, and then it's going to be, isn't that interesting that, that who, somebody said this, that, that you can be truly interdisciplinary only as a tenured professor, because mm -hmm. you can't afford, afford that before, which I'm not sure it is true, because both of us yeah. have been interdisciplinary before. Uh, but I can see that it's easier to, to, Stay in the highly clustered local 
local social network of, of, of brains yeah. uh, before you allow yourself to 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 to, to branch out. Yeah. Um, I wonder what your trick. I, I I will I will I have a trick. My only trick is that I I some somehow learned to allow myself to look stupid. Oh yeah. It is really difficult to do. I, that's not difficult for me. Is that what you do as a what? Do you have a trick? What's your interdisciplinarity trick when you enter a new field? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's similar. It's like you know, yeah. if you're curious about something and you want to know, then right. you follow that, right? Yeah. And I think not being too self-conscious of right. like, oh, is it uh, against the norms to ask this kind of question after this kind yeah. of talk? And you just ask it. Yes. So, yes. yeah, I and think then, it's similar. But then some, some groups are really responding really badly to that. Yeah. yeah. But then also just talking to people, too, yeah. right? So I think, um, it, you know, in academia, as with probably everywhere, people feel most comfortable to talk to the people who they've already talked to. Right. And I think, you know, pushing out of that to really, you know, have mm. conversations with people who you mm. don't know um, and to be open to, you know, hearing things that might not yes. be consistent with what you already yes. think or what, what you've been told. And yeah. um, you know, for me, it's like I'm always intrigued when there are contradictory things, you know, when I hear something that is not what I think or what I've heard before. And I go towards that rather than, you know, trying to like, oh, well, they, they don't, they, what they think must be wrong because it's not, yes. you know, yes. what I was taught. It's, so. it's irresistible when, yeah, when there are two exactly. truths at the same time. It's like, <laughs> why? <laughs> why? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then, you know, trying to say, well, all right, if I, you know, can I fully understand that position mm -hmm. and fully understand this position to come up with something that maybe is drawing from both and is better. Like how, you know, maybe you want to, you want to make a, you know, delicious soup, mm -hmm. chicken soup. And so you look at two different recipes and then you decide what you're yeah, going to make. Fusion. I know you like to cook, so. Yeah. <laughs> like, like fusion. Yeah. So, so do you have an example where, where you, you saw two truths separate from each other and then you figured out a new framing in which they merged or you, you managed to somehow resolve the tension yeah i mean i think this whole question about helping based on need mm -hmm. versus you know i'm saying versus here right helping based right. on expecting something in right. return so you know th that was something that you know it seemed for a very long time like oh those are two different models mm -hmm. for how humans behave that are contradictory mm -hmm. right and like they you know the argument of which one, right? Oh, there's mm. evidence for this, or there's evidence for that. Well, there's evidence that that doesn't happen, and that doesn't happen. So, you know, if you're stuck in that binary, mm -hmm. it has to be one or the other, then you're just in a loop where, right. you know, it, it, I believe this and you believe that, and it's ideology, right? right? Um, but to say, okay, well, yeah, you know, there are these situations where people don't expect mm -hmm. to get paid back. That's interesting. And then there's these situations where people do. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So, well, let's look a little bit more into, mm -hmm. you know, well, in what situations are people expecting to get paid back? Mm -hmm. well, in what situations are they not? You know, and then and then you start getting into the sort of, you know, more subtleties about maybe the flexibility of human nature in mm -hmm. different circumstances. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, just recently we had the chance to do a 
study where um, this was actually in the desert southwest in Arizona mm-hmm. with ranchers who are mm-hmm. still um, they have cattle they get on their horses that you know they're I mean they're still ranching um, and they often ask for help from neighbors for things and they call this neighboring and we we gave them a list of all sorts of things that they might need help with this was after doing a bunch mm-hmm. of field work so we knew the kinds of things that yeah. you know were yeah. that they would ask for help with um and we had them uh rate them on how predictable or unpredictable they were mm-hmm. and on how um much they would expect to get repaid and what kind of repayment and we yeah. found that well, can you guess which what the relationship is if something is very unpredictable a need that's unpredictable like someone dies or yeah so that, that's, a, that's a need base so the yeah. unpredictable is going to be the right. need base that's the whole point yeah. I mean, uh, exactly that, that, uh, <laughs> that's your discovery yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that 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 is the kind of insurance in a way yeah. an insurance system yeah uh, did you look at how if the if the hormonal basis or the neuroendocrinological basis of uh, of these behavior is different so when you're engaging with someone in a credit base Mm-hmm. or an exchange base versus a need base, do people, do the brains do different things? Yeah, that'd be great to look at. We haven't looked at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would, you know, mm-hmm. speculate that, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Do you bond more if you give need-based? Yeah. Uh, so oxytocin is going to be... Uh, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> very cool, very cool, very cool. Yeah, yeah. So I, dis- I, I discovered this whole thing that, that we need to... So I looked at unconditional giving, which is in a way a need-based yeah. thing, at Burning Man. Yeah, tell... So yeah, yeah, shall I tell you about that? Well, yeah, and first of all, <laughs> yes. um, say a little bit about what Burning Man is, oh, what just Burning in Man's, case. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. So um, Burning Man is a festival, an art festival in the Nevada desert. Uh, 85,000 people show up for about nine days. Uh, the I don't know what ratio, but let's say half of them bring some kind of art project or participate in an art project. Uh, so art is a gift, a gift to the community. And it's somehow... Well, and some of them also bring other things. And, right? and you can bring other things. You can bring they'll, other things. They'll gifts, bring like yeah. food or beverages <coughs> and, and yes. share those and... But yes, everybody um, brings something, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Idea. Or but yeah. or or the whole idea is giving. Uh, we were queuing in. I was going in for my first burning, uh, and we were queuing in a car. And somebody knocked on the door. Two people came. A very beautiful woman and a very beautiful man, and they knocked on the door. And he said, "They said, is there uh, somebody who's here for the first time?" And I said, "Well, I am." I said, "Come, step out." And then and they said. <clears throat> Um, do you do you like panini? And I said, a little bit taken back because never nobody ever offered me a panini like that. And I said, but I knew I was expecting that there are gifts here. So, right, and they said, I said yes. So one stood in front of me, the other stood behind me. They hugged me and pushed me through. <laughs> and I said, human panini. <laughs> and then he said, wow, that was a gift. Yeah. And then they thought about it, and they just were walking up in this boring queue, and they just they just brought a little bit of sunshine. Yeah, because everyone was just waiting in the cars, and, right? And yeah, and it's just so boring. <laughs> so yeah. the whole thing is like that. And I, uh, Maria Goodell, who's the who's the CEO of the organizing organization, 
is a friend of mine, and she invited many times before. She invited me many times before, and she said, look, you must come and see this, because this is human nature at play. And I was like, you know, oh, you know, there's selection bias And you're here. like, I've never even been to a strip club. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can go to... You, I can tell you that you can go to Burning Man and not be having... <laughs> because I've done it. Um, and anyway, so finally I'd gone there, and I realized that people give these really weird, unconditional gifts. And they are truly unconditional gifts. And they give it all the time. That's They use this nine-day space. And that space in the desert to give, 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 give. And I kept seeing people shining where they give. Mm. And wow, what is going on here? I mean, that shine, I mean, is that... What is it? That must be some hormonal process going on. And I said, how do you feel? And they said, I feel warm and fuzzy. Okay, like, okay, okay. Oxytocin is already up. Yeah, like, something is going on here. And then, and then once I managed to give something, I brought some silly presents, but they were stupid and like pointless. And, and, and so I was in the, in, in, in the middle of the night, uh, two o'clock in the middle of the desert. And there were this shiny object in the distance. So I cycled up to them. And it was a lotus, a four and a half meter tall lotus forest, uh, built from these electrical lamps. Cool. It was beautiful. And at the edge of the forest, do you mind if I tell this? Yes, please. Uh, uh, and at the end of the edge of the forest, there was a couple, a very good looking couple, uh, who were sort of holding out their mobile phone to try to take a selfie. And I realized that they, what they wanted is they wanted to have a selfie with that with that lotus at the edge, yeah. at the edge, with the darkness behind. So yeah. I just walk up there, took, without saying a word, because this is a place, space in which you can do this, I just took this mobile phone and walked a little bit away to, so that I can frame the whole thing, and I took a photo, and they, and they said, maybe they wanted to have a close-up. So I woke up, and you know, just framing their faces, and then the behavioral scientists kicked into me. They uh-huh. were having fake smiles. I didn't really pay attention to them, yeah? yeah? It's just like I was just going to... But it was not a Duchenne smile. And I, <laughs> and I, thought, and I thought, okay, I know how to do this. Mm-hmm. Without telling them, which was not exactly ethically okay, but anyway, without but telling them... you weren't them, in your scientist's I wasn't in realm, my scientist's realm, yeah. realm. Despite the fact yeah, that yeah, the behavioral yeah, 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 scientists... It was there. In, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, pushed, I pushed the... I put, switched to video... Their faces yeah. are framing this. Yeah. I switched the video, and knowing exactly there's going to be a smile now, a real natural smile, I said, are you guys in love? To which there was silence. And you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> and there was just silence. And because I'm shameless, I kept holding the camera. Wow. And then at one point, she looked up at, at, looked up at him, but after like 10 seconds, 15 seconds, I wow. don't know. And she said, it's for him to say. Mm. To which he, without hesitation, said, yes, we are. And then, so then I asked, for how long? And exactly at the same time, they said three months. Mm. So I, 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 I stopped the video, gave the camera to them. And then I said in my, I have to add, add to this, that I yeah. was in, in a golden toga, yeah? Uh, <laughs> and, and, and nothing else. And I said to them, I am Zeus, the god of Burning Man. <laughs> and they walked away. And, and I circled back to, the old, to all my friends. 
And so I gave them a framed, like a nice photo with the, with, the, with the beautiful lotus and the dog background, a video in which the, for the first time they said that they loved each other yeah. and the story that this was the god of Burning Man who got this. I was high, socially high on oxytocin so much. I'd gone to one of the dancing camp tents yeah. and I danced for an hour and a half with my eyes closed and just, just enjoying wow. the social high. It was a natural high. And I realized, okay, this is why everybody's shining. Because mm-hmm. if you give, if you if you're able to give, give something that's a meaningful to somebody else, you bond with them. You know, I mean, I'm still in love with them. <laughs> like, <laughs> you don't even so know good. their names. I don't even know their names. <laughs> but it was so good. Yeah. yeah. So, so of course, this is this is at this point the need based. You know, mm-hmm. at Burning Man, there, there's a saying: the plier will provide, which which is a bit of a supernatural narrative being brought into this place, and it's <laughs> in itself very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but also, it's essentially if if you need something. There is going to be a solution. It's essentially mm-hmm. the ultimate need based needs based. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought about looking at Burning Man and, and the plier will provide as a need based? Well, I think it would be amazing to study Burning Man and have a you know do some some research there. But I've never been, so I don't even know anything other than what I have heard secondhand. So. Let's 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 go our research trip. Let's do a <laughs> let's collect all our friends who are yeah, behavioral yeah. scientists and do a, a Burning Man that research would be awesome. trip. That would be really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, returning back to the sort of social network mm-hmm. question and like how how mm-hmm. it's influencing us when we kind of start, you know, coming to the end and wrapping up the podcast, I always like to ask about oh, I forgot the... Yeah, we're recording a podcast yeah. right now, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Every conversation about is so much fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so when you have all these potential influences, mm-hmm. right, from the, the social network and and you, you know you can have a smaller network you can have um you know in that smaller network maybe more social influence mm-hmm. um but w- you know what happens if you sort of take the way that humans are influenced by our by our social networks and mm-hmm. if you you know ramp that up so that it's you know you enhance that influence um you you take it you know you 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 exaggerate it um are there is is there a zombie apocalypse of like you know too much zombification from social networks like what happens you know what would that world look like if we were so you know zombified by the social networks that we're in so i guess this is how these crazy uh crazy drifts away to crazy reality can happen yeah when similar when so if if there is a, a new truth that emerges and that new truth is is constantly being signaled by all our social connections, mm-hmm. then we automatically mm. will sign up to those new truths. That we have no choice. Uh, so like a cult kind of situation almost. Yes, but yeah. the cult is almost the, the extreme version. But we, that can happen all the time. I'll give you an example yeah. that, that I observed on myself for okay. the first time. Um, when I moved to my current college in Oxford, I moved from another college, which I didn't quite like the norms. 
Um, what were they? They, they, they were a different set of norms. That were kind of <laughs> okay, I, I, so you were, don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I mean, it was less trusting and less okay. friendly and less kind. Okay. Um, and and then I moved to my current college nine years ago, and and I, as you know, the scientists in me immediately observed that this is almost like a family. It's friendly. It's kind. It's trusting. Um, it's welcoming. It's integrating. And it took me three months to fully shed the previous college's norms. Hmm. But then I shed, shed it. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So I know that if I would go to a different, different place, I would, have to, I would have to shed these to be untrusting and <laughs> unfriendly again. Uh, and of course, that was because I had these norms preset. But if you go to any space where you don't have these norms, he said, especially if, if, if they make you vulnerable at the beginning, uh-huh. then you will latch on the new norms immediately. Hmm. Uh, Burning Man, again, is a very interesting uh, example where okay. after you arrive and, and the old timers will be wa- walking around naked right away. Uh-huh. And it takes uh, two days. It took for me two days each time to sort of normalize that. But mm-hmm. after two days, just you know, just another human being. It doesn't matter whether they give yeah. or not. Yeah? Uh, and a bunch of other norms around giving, gifting, uh, uh, inclusion that yeah. are different in these spaces. Uh-huh. That they are. So I wonder, you could actually push this to the edge. Yeah. And you could push, you could create these norms that they just go crazy, after which everybody says, what happened here? <laughs> so a lot of, I mean, the 20th century provided a bunch of these Examples: right. the Nazis, the communists, right, uh, right. Uh, a lot of religious sects have yeah. these these new truths, where if you are in it, you just can't come out, unless mm. you can't come out. Decide you can't decide yeah. to come out. If you somehow end up outside, then you have a new set of norms. Then I presume you look back and say, "What happened to yeah. me there?" Because I've got this really cool new set of norms. Well, I mean, it's really interesting to think about those, you know, historical, you know, tragedies and tragedies isn't even a strong enough word for it, but to think of it in terms of this clustering coefficient thing, right? That like, you know, it, maybe it's not just about the persuasiveness of, you know, whoever is organizing all of it, Mm -hmm. but it's about, you know, other ways of increasing that clustering coefficient so that all the voices around you are saying things, and, and, and it might not even be, you know, the things that are being said might not map on to what's actually being done, right? Yes. But the story that's being told is very, you know, coherent, and you're hearing it from everyone, and everyone around you believes it. Yes, yes. And you could actually tell stories uh, that, but there, we have, we, I'm not even sure how to put this historical data in a, in a structure that we could actually pro- do a proper test. But you could tell a story, I just use this word for yeah. now, yeah? that falling fertility in the 18th century in France might, ha- might have triggered a situation in which there was a space for uh, uh, a kin language using mm. uh, revolution and nationalism. That the the war, the First World War, together with with the epidemic afterwards, f- called the population in which 
then almost as if fertility had fallen down. Mm. Uh, and that created a space for the kin language using communist ideology, the kin language using Nazi ideologies uh, to emerge. So, so maybe you could tell these stories, but of course I cannot test. Although yeah. they're, they're too appealing in that they might work, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to actually test yeah. this hypothesis. Yeah, well, I, I mean, just the idea that, you know, the, that your position in the network could influence your, you know, vulnerability to kin terminology, right? So right. if you don't have a lot of close kin, right. then maybe you are more vulnerable yes. to that. that. That's testable. Yes. You could test that. We are actually setting yeah. up uh, with one of my, my students. We're, we're setting up a, a cool. similar. We're trying yeah. to see to what, what extent the variation in kin terms effect, trigger, it's a really weird thing because if I say you, Athena, you're my sister, it, it, uh, it might trigger a sibling-like behavior, mm -hmm. uh, but, but of course... It does make me feel a little warm and fuzzy when you say that. You're, really, so, you're yeah. my sister. <laughs> but it's like the classic cheap talk. Yeah, I just said like you are my sister. But I know sister. you really Four mean words. it, right? So <laughs> of course, of course. But of course, under yeah, one I know what you mean. But yeah. maybe if 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 um, if somebody else says it, who is obviously asking for something, mm -hmm. uh, then maybe your alarms come up. Mm -hmm. So there is going to be a really complex behavior, but clearly it's hackable. Yeah, yeah. if you feel warm and fuzzy now. And then you go into a community in which everyone says, Athena, sister, come and join us. Yeah. We are here for you. See, it just sounds like it sounds creepy when you say it like that. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm already like, like whoa. You know, partially, 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 right? Partially because my, my, my singing teacher, she, she taught me how, how to, you know, when you warm up and you, you loosen yeah. the muscles. Yeah. And when you loosen the muscles, you speak like this. And, and I realize why it's creepy when people speak like that. Because, of course, when you just want to warm up, you want to relax the muscles. Okay. So you're going to speak like this. But if you are, if you have really nasty, nasty um, intentions, yeah. you want to mask those. Oh. So you will forcefully, forcefully uh, relax, uh, relax them. And it becomes this really creepy thing. <laughs> anyway, just as a sign. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? After you leave, I'm going to try to just, if I can talk weird like that. Cause it, that's very Everybody interesting. Can, yeah. That's very just, interesting. Just <laughs> and and yeah. everybody will know either you're creepy or you're warming up. <laughs> or both, yes. Yeah, that's really interesting. So if you are, you know, if people are good at hearing mm -hmm. the creepiness, right. then the absence of any signal is a sign that you're trying to hide something. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So suddenly, suddenly, bearded. Be Politicians are not bearded and don't have mustache unless they live in a dictatorship. Really? If, yeah, have you not noticed really? this? Dictators <laughs> have beard and mustache, and all, when you elect them, they have to cut out cut out the beard because you want to see the signals. So then, what's going on with the hipster beards now? I don't know. I, don't, I had a beard for two years. It was really weird. When I was sad, people thought I was angry. Oh. And I and I cut it down, and everybody thinks I'm this huggable bear. <laughs> like, there's no difference. The same guy under the beard. Uh -huh. So anyway, so this is the same, same, 
uh-huh. thing. I mean, there is research on this formidability versus uh, trustworthiness mm-hmm. with the different amounts of, mm. of of beer. This is why when you go to okay, I'm going to say this quietly because maybe some of our friends are going to listen to this. Uh, <laughs> but you know, when you go to our conferences, yeah. HBS or EB, and uh-huh. all these guys who read the research, because the research says that that if you have a lot of very bushy beard your formidability rating goes up and your trustworthiness goes down. Mm-hmm. And if you cut off your beard, so you have a clean-shaven face, your formidability goes down, perceived formidability, and the trustworthiness goes up. Mm-hmm. And then there's a golden point. So a 10-day stubble. <laughs> so actually, you walk into these spaces and there are all these guys with a 10-day stubble walking oh, yeah. around. <laughs> we'll have to pay they are doing zombie. They are just hacking the, 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 the psychology. <laughs> Everybody else. Or maybe they were just zombified by like the one study that showed yeah. that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> maybe somebody is laughing. <laughs> that study too. Maybe it's all a big experiment. <laughs> yeah. So, so what um, what can we do to keep ourselves from getting trapped in, you know, these like communities where there are ideas that can perpetuate themselves that might not really be good for us or good for society well or, or might just do we be, know what is not good for us or, or, or we could even just say might you know in academia be holding back scientific progress if we're stuck in yeah yeah you know. so so yeah so branching out is is the is 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 the way way to do that. So what alarms me a little bit is that sorry, I, I was going to say so more brains, more brains, yeah, different brains, not more all brains, just the yes, same brains, yes, yeah, connect to different. What alarms me a little bit that we have, I count at least five global problems, but definitely, okay. we are definitely in the middle of the sixth extinction wave, of, in the history of life. And by any measure, it is at least three magnitudes faster than the next fastest. Really? Yeah. Three orders of magnitude faster. Faster so than the next fastest. that's a thousand. No. It's not on the scale of million years. times yeah. faster. Huh? Right? No. No, that's a, thousand, a thousand times a faster. Thousand. Three it's not, orders it's, of magnitude. It's not on wow. the scale of yeah. million years. It's the scales of hundreds and wow. hundred years and thousand yeah. years. So, so, that, so that means that and we are not worried about it enough. You know, if, if any, any of us here or listening to this did not spend this morning thinking about it, that, that's a wasted morning. Mm. Because the, 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 the scale is, is really almost too big to sink. And mm-hmm. so I, I sometimes wonder whether some of our, some of these not, some of these brains in academia are who would be the brains, at least some of the brains, to think about this and find yeah. find solutions, are too much locked into these local intellectual dynamics. Interesting. And uh, what do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of what we're trying to do with the zombie apocalypse medicine meeting is say, hey, there's a lot of shit that's going on in the world that's right. really weird. And things that we can't figure out by just staying in our disciplines. And so if we're going to, you know, you know, figure out what is going on, let alone what we can do to improve outcomes for the future, we have to bring brains together and we have to speak in language that other 
people from other disciplines can understand. You know, yeah. if you're just stuck in your jargon, then that's a language that's only un- understood by everyone who's in that same local cluster yeah. as you. Yes. And so, you know, creating a, a shared language and, you know, making it fun by talking about zombies and the apocalypse, it's kind of what we're trying to do. It's perfect, actually. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Do you have other ideas or thoughts about, like, how to move in that, how we can move in that direction of so sharing brains? I've got this little project which might actually kick up. I've never, I haven't said it publicly, but maybe I, I don't mind if it's public. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about kicking up my academic career mm. or whatever, if it's needed, I don't know. And I'm thinking about sitting down and restructuring knowledge. So the current knowledge structuring, which is the disciplinary knowledge structure. So, okay, let's step back, yeah? yeah. So our industry, let's call it an industry, academia, yeah? academia yeah. is the most highly regulated creative industry that's out there. Well, that's a really interesting way of putting it. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's super creative, yeah? We are about learning the, how the world works, yeah? And for that, we are a bunch of super smart people are put together and they think, think out of how the world works, yeah? excessively highly regulated, yeah? And it, the regulation is within an institutional structure that is organized by disciplines. Mm-hmm. That discipline actually comes from, as I learned from some of my colleagues, from uh, Napoleonic France, where Napoleon wanted to restructure... I'm repeating other people's things now. Yeah. Napoleon, Napoleon wanted to restructure uh, knowledge not based on theology, but based on areas. Okay. So he came up with this idea. Then he lost power. You know, he was mm-hmm. a dictator and he was ousted. Uh, well done. Uh, <laughs> but then, but then uh, the Germans in, implemented this. So the first uh, universities in depart- discipline-based departmental structure em- emerged in Germany. Mm. And, and then that was the system that spread around. Some places, like Oxford, uh, are still having both systems. So we have the old, essentially, old theological colleges. Yeah? Really? And, well, the college system right. is, is essentially that. It's coming yeah. from that. And uh, the departments. Huh. But most universities, and the newer universities, have only the departments. Mm-hmm. And we have, we have the funding coming in disciplines by the department. We have the journals, the language, the methods, the courses you take. The conferences, the where conferences, you talk to people. <laughs> exactly. Come by the department. The trouble is, I think, that is because it's so highly regulated, there's a giant gap between those people who are trying to solve the problems of the world, maybe policymakers in one set, but the startup communities is another, Mm-hmm. Who, who do not get access to the new knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm part of uh, something called Kinenet. It's a, it's a startup community. Mm-hmm. I'm one of their pet scientists. And I, I observe <laughs> that they think about academia as something stuffy in which not, no new knowledge has changed. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, every week, I mean, this week yeah. we had a bunch of new things. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, so every week there is a bunch of new things that is, is often shaking up. You know, there was a, a, a homo sapiens skull, like, like just a few days ago published, like from Greece. Yeah. Like suddenly 20,000 years ago, there was a homo sapiens skull in Greece. Oh, wow. 
it just thrown out 30% of, of, <laughs> of archaeology and there was 60% of, of, yeah. of, of knowledge is being affected. And every week we have something like that. So what if we kill interdisciplinarity? It's a real question to you. What if we kill interdisciplinarity because they will not be disciplined anymore? And we sit down and we restructure, restructure human knowledge, scientific knowledge, academic knowledge, that allows other knowledge systems to enter, but also that allows a better communication mm. between this knowledge base and those inventors, startup people, policy people, mm. who would... What do you think? So, I mean, you're talking about both restructuring knowledge and creating a common language. An interface, yes. We're talking about it. Yes. I mean, you could, yeah. think, of the, 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 you could think of the two concepts, like a stock concept of knowledge... Yeah. And the flow concept of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So, that, so then, and these these might have two different interfaces. I haven't quite thought about what the new interfaces are. Clearly, the current publication system is is broken. Yeah. Uh, so, so somehow we might need to rethink, or we, we should really rethink the way we have the flow communication. But maybe even the the stock communication. Yeah, which yeah. now these days we use universities for that. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should, I mean, given the, mag the, the size of the problem that our species created on this planet, uh, we should maybe have an attempt. At the, anyway, that's so, uh, what do you think? Is this crazy? I think that, you know, it might be crazy, but it also might be what we need to do. Yes, exactly. You know? <laughs> so exactly. We should do something. I mean, it's, it's a crisis. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, I think the whole question of, you know, how should we be organizing knowledge? Mm -hmm. You know, there are so many things wrong with the way that knowledge is currently organized. Yes. And it's not just the, you know, disciplinary issues like um, the, you know, the question of, you know, publication, like the fact that, you know, when we when we publish something like, yes, now, you know, it's on the Internet and you can search it. So that's mm -hmm. great. But if you want to just like get the, the data from a paper, mm -hmm. Um, the, you know, having that in a PDF, that's like totally not queryable. You can't, you know, yes. extract actually the data from yes. a paper with, yeah. So and it just doesn't make sense from an information perspective to be encoding knowledge the way that we are, you know, just in terms of yes. like the information structure. Yes. yes. So it does need a total rethink and... Yes. Um, I think you know if there is a a way to to do it where we can better leverage our you know our human brains too. I mean, my my intuition about it is that like mm -hmm. you know yes, we need some repository for knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. And we need some we need to be able to use computation as an assistant to our brains. Yes, but that the real way that we're we're going to solve things is by being able to interface our brains better and whether that's you know uh you know being more tolerant of having mm -hmm. close relationships with mm -hmm. people who believe things that mm -hmm. are totally different than what you believe or mm -hmm. have knowledge and domains mm -hmm. that you have no familiarity mm -hmm. with but you can trust them mm -hmm. um or the ability to come together and actually like engage in a in a story and imagine things about what might happen so you know, you're saying that you are you are designing a new set of behavioral interfaces, behavioral protocols that facilitate, that facilitate, that reduce the cost of branching out, reduce the cost of 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 of, of relying knowledge and ideas in other people's brains. 
which is which is yeah. which is which is exactly what is needed. So yeah. so if this is going to if this if we are going to be able to work, uh, is exactly what is needed. So I think that sort of jumping away from that side. Yeah. So so you know if I think about what is going to is going to be like, I think about space actual physical spaces. Mm-hmm. They're all around the world. You go in, I mean, mm-hmm. crazy. You go in, get a coffee, yeah. you get Wi-Fi, you get electricity, and there's a chair or a mattress. And, and that is a space where sort of the local neuron, in almost every village, every town. Oh, you got a phone call. Um, it's in the local yeah, town. So, so yeah. and it's almost every, every, every little human social unit would have a little bit of this space. Yeah. And then would require... An interface, a pro, a behavioral protocol of how to connect these set of brains to another set of brains in which, you know, we have, we turn ourselves into an actual functioning brain that, because we need, need to. I mean, like, look at these problems that we are facing. Yeah. Completely crazy. Yeah. And we are not panicking yeah. enough. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we need to have trust, you know, but then it's like, well, how do you develop that trust with people right. who, know things that you don't know so that you can put your brains together to try to solve something you couldn't solve by yourself. Um, and I, I mean, I think that sometimes also, you know, academia and humans in general get really zombified by ego also, right? So it's like, oh, well, am I going to get credit for this or am I going to get enough credit or, you know, and mm-hmm. and so to the extent that, you know, academia, you know, is a place where people have careers where they're trying to advance. I think sometimes that can also get in the way of the kind of trust and brain sharing mm-hmm. that would need to happen to really solve some of the problems that we have. Here's a question. What if we have a practice of giving an, an idea every week as an unconditional gift? We would, we would actually we would think about other people's research problems and then we would we would come up say this is an uh, this is tagged as an unconditional gift. I will nev- nev- not be on the paper. I will not get funding from this. It's a gift from me to you. And if just once a week, everybody would find anybody and say, give an unconditional gift. That's awesome. I and love that. It's a super simple <laughs> protocol. Yeah. We come up with ideas all the time. Yeah. And they say this is yours. Yeah. And that's it. And then, and let's see what happens. I think that that is a great place to start. Yeah. Yeah. And a great place to end, perhaps. End the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) This was a great conversation again. We always have such great. I really enjoy talking to you. Likewise. Thanks for sharing your wonderful brains. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, we don't need nobody.
Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And we would like to thank everyone in our extended and close social network that helps make Zombified possible, uh, including the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. Yeah, and the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and President's Office at ASU. And the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. Of social networks. That's right. And zombie networks. (laughs) Zombie networks. (laughs) All the brains that help to make this podcast, including Tal Ram, who does our fabulous sound. Neil Smith, who does all our illustrations. Lemmy, the creator of our awesome song, Psychological. That's right. And everyone on the Z team, um, who really are a part of our social network now. And actually, as are all the other people we just mentioned. But Yes. And, uh, and they also, they work on extending our network through social media. And that's right. Letting and you, guys you, can, know. you can join our social network by following us on but, Twitter. Finding us on true. Facebook. We're on TikTok. Where else are we? Instagram? On, yeah, whatever thing they've invented between the time we pressed stop and by the time we uploaded <laughs> these, <laughs> we'll be there. So send yeah. us a send us some sort of message if you'd like. Um, or yeah. a hologram or whatever the heck it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the main place to find all these different things is zombified.org. Uh, that has our episodes and all that stuff yeah yeah and if you want video check out channelz.org we have videos they're really fun we have shows that uh range from kind of like news shows to cooking in the apocalypse shows to medical advice if you get bit by a zombie so definitely check that out they are useful hilarious terrifying all at once so (laughs) Uh-huh. And if that's not enough for you, you can also buy our merch. So you could get like t-shirts, coffee mugs, um, then you can put your coffee in it so that you're not so zombified. And if people see you're wearing this t-shirt or walking around town with the coffee mug, they can say, hey, we're part of the same extended social network through our mutual interest in Zombified. And then that you is can right. make a new friend. And so yeah. there you go. And I do have to say, Dave, that working with you and the rest of our Z team, both, you know, our undergraduates and our whole production team for Zombified and Channel Z has um, really been a lifeline for me in these apocalyptic times. Yeah, me too. It really has been a ton of fun. And I feel like we've grown really close. Like we're like a big family um a big dysfunctional family that's way too connected now so that's right and, and only see each other over zoom so that's right. uh, well um well yeah well this you know it's it's always been fun so um thanks thank you and thank you all for listening to zombified your source for fresh brains crazy but it seems so logical i can't deny that there is something supernatural with you